Blaze On Demand. First question is, recently you appeared with Governor Romney in Chicago. And in your book, you talk at length about the 2012 election, your vetting process, and some takeaways from the election. Uh, in your view, what was the biggest mistake made by the campaign? Well, I, I kind of talk about the, the notion of a referendum versus a choice uh, and that strategy. And, you know, the typical conventional wisdom in a campaign like that is to make it a referendum on an unpopular incumbent. Um, and, and my personal experiences has, have always been to make them um, sharp choices in contrast. And those two strategies don't have to be mutually exclusive. Um, but, you know, I like to have elections where you're running on specifically how you'll do things differently so that when you win, you have the obligation and the moral authority to do it. Um, you know, at the end, we close that way. Um, the other, you know, regret is that our party, you know, didn't have the kind of voter turnout technology we needed. Um, you have a lot of uh, – the, the incumbents have such a competitive advantage. You know, you come out of the primary like Mitt did with no money in May, you don't get your general election money until mid-August, and the incumbent pounds you for three or four months in the battleground states defining you before you can define yourself. And so, you know, there are a lot of competitive disadvantages. Some of those are structural that need to be addressed. But this, the way I see where the country is headed, um, the liberal progressive philosophy that's on display and in, in practice, the policies that flow from it, I really believe we need to give the country a really clear choice um, of, of what founding principles look like in practice today and how, if applied to the moment, can offer solutions and policies that can renew the American idea, get our country back on top, put us on a different track, bring that to the country, make our case, have the elections, and then if you win, and I think we can and will, then do it. And, you know, that's the kind of election we need to have. We need to give it to the country before it's too late uh, because I do worry that our, you know, we, you know, we're running against a clock here. And, sure. and I worry that we can become a social welfare state, you know, like a, like a European Western social democracy uh, very quickly if we don't watch it. And we, we, need, to, we need to not only criticize and, and explain why that's an empty promise, but also we have to explain what we would do differently and what kind of world it looks like. And I believe that people really have a great affinity for the American idea, for the founder's vision. And I think we need to re reinvigorate that. Sure, and, and to that end in your book, you lay out a, a very robust agenda with monetary, fiscal, regulatory, yeah. all matter of reforms. Um, yeah, specifically crony capitalism, go after crony capitalism, re-inject sound money, get the regulators back in their, in their constitutional parameters and boxes, um, allow businesses to grow, allow the economy to thrive, and do welfare reform 2.0 so we can work on getting people from welfare to work and make sure our country is strong and safe by, by not denuding our military forces and having a foreign policy that, it, that is strategic. And to that end, if you were to implement your agenda, would you be swelling the rate of growth of government, or would you actually be shrinking from the baseline? No, I think you need to shrink from the baseline. Look, we've we played with these things before. Um, just I'm just going to give crude numbers. For the last 60 years, we have basically taken about 20% of GDP out of the economy for the government. If you just take today's government 
and keep it on its track where we are, we'll be at 40% of GDP by the time I've got grandkids running around America. And so slowing the rate of growth, does that mean we're supposed to be complicit with 30% of GDP instead of 40%? Not at all. And so I really think we need to go back to the basics, back to relimiting government so that it does what it's supposed to do and it does it effectively, and then, and then it's held there so that civil society, charity and community, and a free market economy can fill the rest of that space for American life. I, it, to me, it's a, it's, a, it's a vision of a society-centered vision that's collaborative versus a government-centered vision that is coercive. That is the choice we have going for us, and it is not just be a, a more efficient tax collection for a welfare state. It is get America back to first principles, get our government relimited and focused so that we can have a society-centered vision for American life that is collaborative, that is growth-oriented, and that is secure. Right. And, and one element of that, which you mentioned previously, is crony capitalism. And you say in your book, Republicans should be staunchly opposed to corporate welfare in any form and to the cozy relationship between government and big business that undermines the dynamism of our economy. Now, how do you reconcile that for readers who are skeptical and, and feel betrayed by, by government and by Republicans in particular? How do you reconcile that with votes on TARP and the auto bailout that you took? Yeah, well, I actually talk about the auto bailout in that one, and that's what I call defensive voting, where you have to vote for something that you don't like to prevent something worse from happening. Um, TARP, I was very worried at the time that that Ben and Hank, Paulson and Bernanke, hyperventilated the situation so much that we would have perhaps had a deflationary spiral, and then uh, progressives would have swept the elections even more and done even more damage. So I, th- those were what I call defensive votes uh, that I did not enjoy. And the, and the, the lesson takeaway, the takeaway lesson from that is the leadership matters because they frame the choices that you make in Congress between the choices of, of lesser evils. Uh, that is something that I think is a very important lesson that I learned that we all need to learn. And we, myself included, as Republicans, have got to make amends with the fact that, you know, we have not been perfect on minding our principles and policies like crony capitalism. Um, you know, I fought Fannie and Freddie all along from day one, but our party didn't fully do it, and we have what we have now. Um, that's why I'm siding with Jeff Hensling in this XM fight over the Export-Import Bank. I think as Republicans, it's easier for us to go back to being a pro-market party instead of a pro-business party, because it just means reacquainting ourselves and reapplying our principles. For progressives, crony capitalism and corporate welfare is in perfect alignment with their principles. And so Republicans have to remember that simply helping the incumbent local big business is not the same as being pro-market, which means that that big incumbent business should never be protected from, from competition. You don't want to be a party to erecting a barrier to entry against anybody because that reduces the dynamism in the economy and reduces the ability for freedom and free enterprise to really take root. And so all of us have to, have to reacquaint ourselves with these principles, reapply them, and show people what they would do, how they would do differently. And the problem, I, I say, going back in the past, because I, you want to learn from these things, is that you know the leadership you have and the decisions that are made often determine the kind of choices that are made. And we don't want to continue putting ourselves in these positions where we're making a choice of the lesser of two evils. 
Sure. And and real quick, you mentioned the Export-Import Bank. I had read recent reports indicating that there might be a short-term extension. Do you foresee that happening? I do because we want to win this fight, and we worry that if we don't do a short-term, we might not. Um, just know that that is a tactical uh, um, a, a move that we think is in the in, is, is in our best interest for those of us who who are who are not in favor of the bank. Mm-hmm. Now, jumping to another issue, which is of primary importance for for many of our readers uh, on immigration. Recent polls have indicated substantial American aversion. This is across political lines to legalization. Um, while the primary proponents of amnesty or some other path, I know you, you call it probation in your book, um, the primary proponents of that are Democrats and the Chamber of Commerce, which is a proxy for big business. So why are you siding in this instance with the Chamber of Commerce and the Democrats when Chamber of Commerce views this as cheaper labor and Democrats view this as potentially 12 million more voters? I don't. Uh, I don't think. I don't think it's an accurate portrayal that I'm, I'm taking that side. Uh, first of all, in my vision, a person couldn't, wouldn't be. Would, first of all, most people won't, won't even get citizenship. They'll just get a work permit if they clear probation, and that can only happen if the government secures the borders, does interior enforcement, and a visa tracking system, and e-verify. Those things have to be in place before anything else can go. So it's security first approach. Second, um, I think it's just some. The, the smartest way to deal with the, uh, the the 11 million undocumented or whatever the number is. And I also think with an E-Verify system up and running, I think that's going to, to be a, a very important reform in and of itself. But the last point I guess I would make is a person could never become a citizen for, for well over a decade, 15 years minimum. Um, and so it's not as if people like me are rushing to give people citizenship. I'm not. I'm talking about just to get, giving people access to a work permit if they clear probation and only if the government actually fully and fundamentally secures the border, puts E-Verify in place all across the country and a visa tracking system in place. It's not trust but verify. It's verify then trust. And so a person can't even get out of probation if the government doesn't do its job. And then and only then can they get a work permit, not citizenship. So that that person can't vote under the under this scenario I just described. And should the American people have confidence that regardless of the shifting political winds, that if that kind of system was implemented, Democrats or others wouldn't tamper with it and then basically yeah. push through a de facto amnesty? That's right. That's why I say the law has to be really clear, which is a security-first approach. None of these things can then happen if the government doesn't secure the border, if E-Verify isn't up and running nationwide, and if a visa tracking system isn't in place which we think are the three components of reasserting the rule of law and controlling our borders. So to me, it, it, it's, it's you do this security things first and nothing else can happen. At the end of the day, though, I do believe we need to transition our legal immigration system away from chain migration and toward a visa system that meets the needs for the economy. Because with boomers retiring in about a decade, we will have labor shortages in certain sectors, and that's the kind of immigration we ought to have to fill the needs of the economy where somebody isn't filling that job in this country. It's what other countries have. And right now, visas are largely given based on family relations. They should be given based on what the economy needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to touch a little on your anti-poverty agenda. You lay out a very robust vision there, um, very much in the mold of Jack Kemp, who I know you worked closely with for several years. 
Um, talk a little bit about what your anti-poverty agenda entails. I think as conservatives, we have so much to offer. We have good principles and great ideas, and that we should challenge the monopoly of policies that have that have governed the war on poverty, which has been trillions. It's 50 years old, and the results speak for themselves, the highest poverty rates in a generation. And we need to emphasis on getting people from welfare to work. And we need to focus on on civil society, on local control, on states' rights, and on emphasizing work and breaking up welfare monopolies, which is which are the basic components of my poverty strategy. You know, I look at, at what conservatives can offer here is much like what we did in the area of education with school choice and charter schools, breaking up uh, government-run monopolies to the, to the betterment of the people and the kids who need good education. Let's take the same principles and the same energy to the rest of, of the poverty uh, area and apply them with equal vigor. And I think not only can we do more to renew upward mobility, the promise of, 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 of a better American life, but I think we as conservatives can break up these political monopolies um, that have not been working. Mm-hmm. On defense, you lay out your belief in, in a vigorous American foreign policy where America re- reclaims its place as a world leader. And you also talk about, and this is something that I think really resonates likely with our readers, fitting our budget to the strategy, not, not the other way around. That's right. How would a President Ryan go about defeating Islamic supremacism? And in the immediate term, how are we making sure that Americans who are in Arabia fighting are not going to come back and strike our homeland and that jihadists are not pouring through our borders today? Okay, so that's a lot of questions packed in there. Um, let me ask you real quick. Tell me I got to run in here. I'll, get, I'll answer this time. Go. Um, first of all, you need to have secure borders. This is why I say that border security is first and foremost because of the terrorist threat, because of the drug smugglers. Uh, so you really do have to actually have a border security plan because of the of the, of the real clear and present danger that that, is, that we're experiencing. Second of all, I don't want to hear from our commander in chief how we're containing ISIS, how we're securing the Mosul Dam. I want to hear from our commander in chief that we have a strategy to defeat ISIS, to defeat these threats where they exist instead of having to fight them here on our homeland. And I think part and parcel of that is to actually have a foreign policy strategy and have a military that is indisputably the strongest in the world that no one can catch up with. That's not what we have right now, and that's the kind of defense and foreign policy strategy we ought to have. And one other question that I'd like to ask uh, regarding a, a contrast that I'm sure there would be in a Ryan or another Republican administration in this one. You talk about President Obama's lawlessness. Um, the American people still haven't gotten answers with respect to Fast and Furious, Benghazi, obviously there's investigations being undertaken, or the IRS scandal. What checks do the American people have with President Obama today, and would Congress ever consider putting forth legislation calling for some kind of prosecutor to investigate the president? So uh, I gave a speech at Hillsdale about a month ago that kind of goes into greater detail about this. Uh, pull that up. It's in Imprimus right now. You know what Imprimus is? Correct. Sure. Yeah. So read that. I mean, that could give you a better, bigger answer on what I, because I, I, I can't pack it all into this. Um, the framers gave us, uh, the founders gave us an important tool, which is the power of the purse, which is being denied Congress because of Harry Reid. I think the, the best thing we could do is get the Senate so that we can use the power of the purse, which is riders on appropriations. We can do better oversight, which is 
bicameral House and Senate, and we can deny the president from from appointing um, you know radicals to the to the uh, courts and to the regulatory agencies. Uh, the reason you know what you know about Fast and Furious or the IRS or Benghazi is because of House Republicans and the oversight we've been doing. We still have a long ways to go. And as part of the IRS investigation, I can tell you, they're slow walking it, and we're not going to give up. But that just shows you we are using our, our, our tools that we have at our disposal, which are limited in the, in the legislative branch. And I do fundamentally believe, and I read that in Primus speech, because it gives you a little more great depth of, of sort of the way I look at these things. Um, we have to use every tool that the founders gave us in the Constitution but we have to work within the Constitution so that we can return respect to the Constitution. And ultimately, what the, frame, what the founders gave us are elections, and that, that's why we have to fix this. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books. And follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.